So friends, we're starting our friends, we're starting our brand new series on the book of James. And the book of James is one of these uh, really kind of underappreciated tomes in scripture. It's very, very brief. You could go home and read it uh, in, in a very short while and, and you'd get all of this wonderful stuff. But within it, there are some great and wonderful things for us to learn. And why? Because James was speaking to us. See, I left the greeting at the beginning uh, of our reading this morning very intentionally because I wanted you to know that James's letter is addressed to you, is addressed to me, is addressed to all the church in perpetuity, to our great-grandparents, our grandparents, our parents, to us, to our children, to our great-children, to our great... No, what do you call them? Right, okay. <laughs> to the little ones who are going to receive, to our spiritual children, to our spiritual grandchildren. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? No, go back. So James is really, really important for us to actually spend some time in and actually have a look at. And I think that it is absolutely instructual, instructive to any church to spend some time in the book of James. Now, initially, when uh, our chair of council, Brian, had asked me about training for the church council, I thought to myself, great, we'll study the book of James. We'll do one chapter each council meeting, and that will help us, because it is just so fundamentally full of good teaching for Christian leadership. But as I was praying and reflecting on this, I came to realize, no, hang on a minute, all of us need to benefit from that. All of us as Christian leaders need to understand this. So I'm going to start this morning with a bit of, an, uh, of a dive into the person of James. And then I'm going to hit that very hard verse where he talks about perseverance. Testing faith produces perseverance. Because I think that that is where James begins. And this is where we need to begin. And I think once you learn a little bit about James's life, you might understand why that is. So are you with me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are here and I thank you for your love and presence. Speak to us and guide us and help us understand your word through your servant James, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might be thinking, James is not really a, um, doesn't sound like a Hebrew name, does it? Doesn't really sound like a Hebrew name. Well, that's because it wasn't. His name was Yaakov. Yaakov, of course, in English we say? Jacob. Very good, very good. So his name was Yaakov, but then he was writing in Greek, and in Greek, those sounds, they don't really quite make sense. So in Greek, it turned to Yaakobos. Can you say that for me? Yaakobos. Yeah. So now from Yaakobos, it went into Latin, and the Greeks, they have this funny thing where when they put a B, you have to do a pre-local nasal. Do you know what that means? So, so say B. Now say, mbu. That's what it means. So the Greeks would like to, used to say, Yakumbos. Yakumbos. Like that. And Yakumbos in Latin then turned into Yakumo, which turned into Italian, Giacomo, which turned into French, Yams, which turned into English. James. See? There you go. That's how we got to that story. 
Now, in the same way how we had to break that all down, it's important for us to understand that we have to break down the person of who James is. Tradition tells us he was the first leader of the church in Jerusalem and that he was Jesus' brother. Now, you might have thought, hang on a minute, the first leader of the church in Jerusalem is Peter. Haven't we always been taught that Peter was the first pope and that he was the one that kind of took over with Christianity? Yes, that is true. However, we need to understand that there was a Jewish practice at play right after when Jesus died. And that was that when a a teacher died, a family member immediately took over. Why? Because these family members, usually brothers or cousins, they would be able they would have journeyed in that journey together and they would have learned and understood. So therefore, we can assume that James had been a disciple of Jesus as his brother. Thank you, Solomon. <laughs> can we maybe just turn me down this time? I think he wanted to emphasize the brotherhood and the, the importance of brothers listening to the older brothers. Is that what it is? By the way, let's give a clap offering. Solomon just had his birthday. He's 14 now. And he's filling in for his sister who's not well today. So thank you so much for your willingness to volunteer. And Eli, you're filling in too. Thanks, buddy. So what we find is we find that this brother relationship, and you can see it going on on the back right now. You can find this brother relationship is there. And it's one where he has journeyed with his brother and he has seen. And what has he seen? He has seen the suffering, the tribulation and the difficulty that Jesus suffered. We could even say that in a sense, in a sense, Jesus took over from John the Baptist because John the Baptist, who was Jesus's older family member, had already begun this journey of teaching. And many of John the Baptist's disciples upon John's demise ended up following Jesus and joining him. The difference is that Jesus established something in Jerusalem that would be localized. It would no longer be the traveling guru going around the countryside, teaching, imparting teaching, and then moving on. It's something that had to be localized. But what was happening in James's time is that this localized expression was becoming dispersed. You might say, oh, hang on a minute, it's the same thing. No, it's not. We have nomadic, itinerant teaching, which is where Jesus was going around traveling and teaching. And we have James who was in one place in Jerusalem and he was teaching there, probably in Bethsaida. And then as part of that work, what was happening is that the Christians were being persecuted and they were leaving. They were leaving Jerusalem because of fear for what was going on. And they were going to places like Damascus and Antioch. And James found himself in a situation where his church was no longer just where he was localized, but everywhere where people came from. So friends, I'm going to do a little exercise right now. I want you to tell me, put your hand up if you traveled north to get here today. <laughs> yep, yep, we got some folks over here who traveled north. What about if you traveled south to get here today? Oh, the majority of you. What about if you traveled west? That's you. <laughs> You're east. You went <laughs> Did you travel east, Maryland? Did you? So you're out west and you came this way? Oh, so you're, you're east coming 
west. So there you go. Did anybody travel east? Yes, the Brazilians. You guys went from, from Ipswich. That's traveling east. So you can say, oh, yes, there you go. There you go. Beautiful. So in that exercise, I wanted to share with you that we've all traveled from somewhere to get here today. What James was saying to his people, and I want you to hear this, is that you go from Jerusalem and you take that ministry to where you find yourself. Are you with me? So if you've traveled east, then when you go back east, take that ministry with you. If you've traveled south, when you go back north, take that ministry with you. And so on and so on and so forth. Because that's what was changing about the Christian church at the time. Now, you may have seen this model, which Eli put up there very early. And I was trying to say, you've probably been staring at it, thinking, this doesn't have anything to do with a tree. What are you talking about? Um, (coughs) That's a model of a tree that many of us have grown accustomed to. Thank you, Eli. And you'll see that the height of the tree generally is equal to that of the depth of the roots. This has been an image which has been taught in Christian circles for many, many years. And it's been really helpful because it's helped us understand that if we root ourselves in Christ, if we have deep penetrating roots in the reality of Scripture and God's Word, that that will hold us to be able to grow into large, majestic trees. The problem with this image, Eli, go back, please. Eli, go back. (laughs) Buddy, don't don't go forwards until I say so. Don't try to anticipate. The problem with this image is that sometimes we look around the church and we see lots of very little trees, don't we? We see people who don't have that outward appearance of being majestic oaks of faith. And that's that is a reality. All of us are growing. All of us are learning. And that is important and beautiful. And I I can guarantee you from the, the greatest preacher, the greatest teacher, the greatest pastoral carer ever you will not immediately be able to tell that about them from their stature. One of my dearest friends is four foot six. Is that? Yeah, about that, four foot six. But he towers in the spirit. Honestly, he does. You know what I'm talking about, though, don't you? <laughs> she does. <laughs> but this gentleman, he does. He towers in the spirit. And it goes to help us understand that it's not about the physical stature, but it is about that spiritual stature. And so it's not, it's not good to look out in the community and judge by the height of the spiritual trees that we have. Because, in fact, the majority of trees don't grow like this. The majority of t- trees actually grow laterally like this and you may have noticed when you see a tree fall over the tree may be 30 feet 40 feet tall you don't have 30 foot of roots on the other end you may have three four five feet of roots it's still impressive but you don't have that very long uh, wave of roots but what you do find is that the spread of the roots is quite Large. And why is that? Why is it that most trees grow this way? Thank you, Eli. Well, because trees, most trees live in a community. 
And in the community, the tree's root systems entangle with each other. And they allow for each other to be nourished, to find nourishment together within the soil, the water, the, the leaf matter on the forest floor, soil. And that allows for the tree to grow better and more stronger. Maybe not taller, but certainly last a lot longer. Do you know the largest organism on earth is actually a forest? It's called plano. It's an ample, am, sorry, um, aspen forest in Utah. It's one singular organism. Why do we say that? Because all of the roots are interconnected and all of those trees are actually part of a single living symbiotic organism just like us in the Christian church. This is how we're meant to be. This is why I encourage you to share your faith with one another, to share God moments, to pray for each other because that's what we're doing. We're sharing that root system. Now, it doesn't mean we have to like each other. No, it doesn't. But it means we have to love each other. Are you with me, church? Yes. Sometimes that's a lot harder. <laughs> because if we pull one of those trees out, the whole organism becomes weaker. I'm about to do something relatively uncharacteristic. I am highly, highly critical of churches and congregations that I see who do this kind of thing where they cut people off and they remove them. And I want to share with you that this is the reason why. I probably haven't shared this with you previously. Because my belief is that Christ has called for a church to be a church with sinners. Not a church that continues to sin, no. But a church that brings people in and through that acceptance and openness, teaching and correction, we can then all grow to be a better forest, to be stronger, to nourish each other. And I have a lot of personal experiences across my life of ministry that have shown me that this is one of the ways that pleases the Lord when he sees the church galvanize and work together instead of ostracize and push people out. And so that's what we desire to do in this place. Now, James goes on to talk about one of the ways in which we can hold each other up and, and be able to be together. Because what we need to realize is that there is a world, this is a world that is in the throes of the enemy. And there are things that are going to happen that are going to be hard. Just like how this morning, equipment was missing, things weren't working. There are times when we need to persevere he says in James 1, verses 2 to 4, Consider it a pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. I wrote like five slides on the etymology of that word. Perseverance is hupomenos. It means to remain hyper so over the top, you know, I'm arrogantly staying here and you can't get me to move. And that's what that means. And, and that's the whole aim of what James is trying to say, because he wants for these people who are fleeing for their lives. that I'm not exaggerating when I say that people were trying to kill Christians 
and they are fleeing. And he's saying to them, yes, flee for your life, protect yourself, but do not flee from the gospel. Because these experiences will produce perseverance. Perseverance in what? In the gospel, in your faith. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. He's writing to the first church and he's saying these things. He's telling them, guys, hold fast. Because if you hold fast, you will have every good thing that God will offer you. So what does this perseverance mean? Thank you, Saul. Thank you, Eli. It means that we need to understand difficulty. Oh, bless you. Uh, and <laughs> we need to understand what it means to be relying on Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, to, uh, 5 3 to 5, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We talk about how our faith is a faith of hope. We are expectant to see Jesus in our lives, alive and second coming. But that hope cannot come from a place of giving up. That is contraindicated. That hope must come from a place of perseverance. From a place of holding on. From a place of saying, I will not be moved from here. Because if I am, then that hope will be for naught. This is where in our Christian journey, we have to be like that far as we have to look at each other and look at our friends, not judging, not looking at the height of the tree, but looking what is going on that perhaps I can do to help, to nourish, to feed, to bless, to open up that door so that that person who is persevering doesn't have to do it alone. Thank you, Eli. In Romans 8, Paul talks about how the earth is groaning with the weight of sin. An expectation for the one who is coming to save her. In verses 23, I'm going from the third section to verse 25. And this is from the New King James Version. He says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. The hope that is seen, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly await for it with what? Are you with me, church? Do you understand where we're going with this? Eli, don't ruin my surprises. <laughs> Nobody saw that. Thank you. No one knew that I lost my train. So. I just want to apologize to the people listening online right now. This is, this is an interesting one for you. 
What we need to understand is that in Romans 8, he outlines the path for salvation and he says clearly the path for salvation has to be paved in hope. But that hope is worth nothing if we are not prepared to persevere, to continue to hold on, to continue to sustain ourselves and each other with the reality of Christ crucified. Friends, I've said many times and I'll say again, if God wanted to save all of Brisbane, he'd take his little finger and he'd stick it on the city and every person would look to it and say, yes, I will be saved. But God chooses not to do that. He chooses the greater glory of using flawed vessels such as you and I. Now, I've shared that with you before. Do you want to tell me why I say that? Sorry, do you want me to tell you why I say that? I tell you because we are imperfect vessels and we need to persevere to get to that place where God can use us for his greater will. That is what discipleship is. It is a refining of us. And the word says that we need to be refined, we need to be sharpened as iron sharpens iron. Only hard iron can sharpen hard iron. Do you know the word perseverance, the original word is in this verse behind me now. From John 15 verses 4 to 5, the first section, ours from the Revised Standard Version, Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, and those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. I told you that perseverance is hupomenos. Remain is menos. You actually can read this verse very legitimately. Persevere in me. Remain in me, even when it's hard. Thank you, Kenny. Remain in me when it hurts. Remain in me when you are challenged and weak. And I will persevere with you. Friends, we need to be like that community of trees in the forest. We need to let our roots go out laterally to bless each other. But we need to remember that at the center of this forest is Jesus. At the center of this forest is a tree of life unlike any other. It's the cross. And the only way that we can grow our fruit and demonstrate our fruit is if we allow Him to be present and to come through for us. I hope that this reads slightly different for you today than it has in the past. Let me share it with you. He says, For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. Persevere with him. And you cannot be fruitful unless you persevere in me. Unless, yes, I am the vine. And you are the branches. And those who persevere in me and I in them will produce much what? Is that what you want, church? Do you want to flourish? Do you want to grow? Do you want to 
Let your roots extend out and your, your leaves extend out. I bet there are people in your life right now that you wish you could help nourish in this way, in this knowledge, in this understanding. Do you know John doesn't have a communion story? Many theologians say that this is it. Because communion is a very old Latin word that means fellowship. The sharing together. That which we share in common unity. That has to be Christ at the center of our forest. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have had to gather around your word, to hear it and know it and understand your will. Bless us as we gather now to savor and enjoy the blessed communion. And let us take this and know that this act is but a gesture depicting that forest that we live in where you are at its center. So bless us with an understanding of this, I pray, in your son's name. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.